1: It's a black barbershop in a cartoon you've never seen that before like that is, you know like it just and and in a Pixar film, you' know what I'm saying like it's uh it's really it it's special to me to be in that in that scene in particular and to to get to be part of this to kind of have that exist in this space for kids. <laughs> that's that is talking about what it is to have a soul i mean like you know again yeah you were right big big swings over there pixar they don't it shouldn't work but it does
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we will be hearing from SAG nominee David Diggs about the 900 different projects that he's involved with that are getting awards attention right now. Uh but first uh we have to speak about this past Sunday, which was the twenty twenty one Golden Globe Awards. And to unpack everything that happened from the Zoom mishaps to the surprise wins to the great speeches, uh or at least decent speeches, uh, I have here our very own senior writer Katie Reif and TV editor Danette Chavez. Thank you both for joining.
3: Hi. Hi. How are you doing?
2: I, uh, I'm so glad that you were able to join us. If you have been listening to the previous episodes, you've heard Danette and Katie weigh in on the film and TV nominations over the past couple weeks. And so uh, it only seemed fitting to have you both back here to discuss what it was like watching this Zoom Globes. Uh, You both actually Mm -hmm. participated along with our news editor, Shannon Miller doing a live blog of the entire experience. So you all have kind of had a little bit of a back and forth. Um, but I am grateful that I am now going to have a little bit of that with you all as well. Danette, let, let's start with you since, you know, obviously as TV editor, you you cover TV. This was something that aired on television just as a television experience. Uh, what, were, what were your feelings about this Globes?
0: Um, I know it, there was a lot of, crit- there, there was a lot of concern about it being very glitchy, but maybe this is just the number of Zoom calls (laughs) I've done since the pandemic started, but it didn't, it didn't, it really didn't strike me as that bad in terms of, you know, how well they were able to keep up the general, like, pace and, you know, cadence of an award show. I mean, you know, there were some solid off-the-cuff moments, like Catherine O'Hara's husband (laughs) doing the bit where he was playing her off. Um, Bob Odenkirk made great use of the, um, you know, like the camera's still kind of rolling and just kind of chatting up the other nominees and the best actor for TV drama category. And it wrapped almost exactly on time. Like, I, I think being on the West Coast, it was probably ran over a bit for you, but it seemed to end right on time for us here in Chicago. Yep,
3: exactly on time. And there was only... Uh, the the only award where I'm not sure if he was on mute or if there were technical difficulties, but uh, the first award of the night, Daniel Kaluuya winning for Judas and the Black Messiah was the only one where, <laughs> where um, you couldn't hear him at first, but he did come back and retake the opportunity. So uh, all the speeches ended up going through.
2: Yeah, I was actually very surprised. I mean, I think that that also like made us a little bit on edge being like, "Uh uh-oh, like what are we in for? Mm -hmm. Um, And you did see, Mm. I think there was a bit of awkwardness there, like there could have been, you know, normally they have a rehearsal for the presenters, but I I think that they could have done with some rehearsal for the uh, winner, you know, as they got all the nominees Mm. online, because it did seem like they were all a little confused of like when they should start speaking and that kind of stuff. So while that could have gone a little bit more smoothly, I, I do think that I was very impressed with how much Tina and Amy, as the hosts were able to banter back and forth in a way that felt very natural and not like when watching you know cable news when when people are having, you know, delayed reactions to things because they're getting the audio a few seconds late. So I do wonder, you know, what the technical workarounds for that were because you did see, and again, this only points to how well most of it went. You, you saw that with, I believe, the introduction of perhaps Jane Fonda, I think it was, where they were a little bit off in their timing because they tried to say something together. So, you know, it was very few moments like that. I was very impressed. I thought they they definitely took time to make sure that their jokes were, were timely and they addressed some elephants in the room, which I'm sure we will discuss in, in, uh, in a bit. But all in all, I was I was impressed with the technical feats, but also and I don't know if it's just because I'm used to the globes being such a party. it, it just it seemed all in all a little underwhelming to me. Katie, what were, what were your main takeaways?
3: Well, one thing that we were talking about on the live blog last night that I think is really interesting is that Danette pointed out that it must have all been one massive Zoom call, which, you know, just makes your heart go up in your throat. It's like, oh, my God, so much potential for disaster there. But when you think about it, you know, when you're when you're on a zoom call, and we've all, you know, taped video interviews. And so we've done a little bit of this, you know, you go between gallery view and individual view and that sort of thing. And that's not that different from the normal method of directing live TV, where the director is going, you know, camera one, camera two, camera one, camera two, it's really not all that different. But what I was thinking was, uh, they must have had, you know, like mega blaze, infinity, hyper fast internet, and all of those
0: places to not have any,
3: you know, no one pixelated out during the ceremony.
0: Um, did, I didn't do a real deep dive into this, but were there any social media posts on what it looked like for someone to walk away With the statue when the person, you know, for like the people that didn't win, because that was one of my favorite moments from the Emmys uh, virtual ceremony was people documenting the person in like a hazmat suit walking away with the statuette but I didn't I couldn't find the globe's equivalent of that.
2: Yeah, well they no. actually made a quick mention during the show that they that they weren't going to even attempt that feat this year and so they um, they're going to be sending them their globes later. So the only ones that <laughs> had them in possession I believe were Norman Lear and Jane Fonda. Um, because yeah, okay. obviously they were able to uh, know know ahead of time that they needed to get those in those hands, but um, but yes, to, to your point, I think that there was an energy with the Emmys, and maybe also because it was the first award show of that size to do a virtual ceremony, I, I think there was a lot more like just fun. With the Zooming uh, that they had at the Emmys and I think Golden Globes was like, we're just going to try and execute as seamless of a show as possible. And I think they succeeded in that role, but it lacked a little bit of that kind of fun and excitement um, that the Emmys gave us. So I I certainly was, was hoping that we'd get some of that as well. Um, but it was a night of uh firsts with some uh some good moves in in the realm of of diversity. We had Chloe Zhao um becoming the second woman ever to win uh Golden Globe for directing so that was exciting the The first being Barbara Streisand decades ago so uh wow. it was it was nice to to have her be victorious out of the first time that they had three women uh, nominated in that category, which mm-hmm. was great. Um, you saw Chadwick Boseman get nominated posthumously for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Uh, While very well-deserved, it's also notable that that is the first time that a Black actor has been awarded posthumously at the Globes. And then we have Anya Taylor-Joy, who is the first Latina to win in uh, the category for Best Actress in a limited series or motion picture made for television for The Queen's Gambit. So, you know, there were firsts when it comes to diversity, but I think the same way that they addressed it, we would be remiss not to address the controversies heading into the award show of the discussion of the fact that there are no Black members of the HFPA, in addition to the other scandals that they had. But this is one that they actually actively addressed, uh, as opposed to, you know, the fact that basically Hollywood Foreign Press is practically for sale um, when it comes to giving out at least (laughs) nominations, if not wins, if you are willing to send send the whole team to Paris, uh, apparently. But uh, (laughs) when it comes to addressing the diversity, I actually thought, uh, because they did say ahead of time that they would be addressing it. And I thought when Tina and Amy addressed it in their opening monologue that that was kind of it, and they were just going to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, laugh about how that's something that really is not good. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised when they more directly addressed it with members of the HFPA coming out on stage. But, you know, Danette, I'll, I'll cut to you because I, I know you've expressed feelings about this. What, what, what did you feel when, when they had that particular moment?
0: I mean I I was underwhelmed by both the jokes and the more earnest statement like I did not expect much coming from Tina Fey and Amy Poehler especially considering you know the interview they did a few years back with the Hollywood Reporter about inclusivity issues staffing issues uh, at Saturday Night Live like and the the gist of their remarks was that award shows are silly we shouldn't really care but they could be doing better <laughs> So, yeah, not 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 super impressed by that. And then the actual, like, it was the chairman of the HFPA and the vice president and president of the organization, each like, you know, like this kind of award show hydra, each taking a line from one statement and rattling it off. I mean, it, it felt like the kind of statement you'd release— in recalling defective airbags or something. Like, we know this is a problem and we're working on it. And it's like, okay. And I mean, but uh, but something that I don't think that, uh, I mean, Sasha Barone-Cohen made a joke about like the all-white HFPA. But as we saw, Maher Tatna is the chairman and she is um, South Asian. So this is just a reminder that people of color can be anti-Black too. You know, people of color can overlook the contributions of Black creatives. Um, so th- this is more than just kind of like shaking the shoulders of like white members of the organization. I mean, this is a much more extensive problem than just, you know, oh, it, it's, it's, it's an all-white group overlooking uh, the contributions of Black artists. So it, I mean, they acknowledged it, and which was the bare minimum, but we'll see whether or not this leads to any real change. I'm yeah.
2: doubtful. I was surprised. Yeah. I was surprised that they didn't, because, uh, you know, something even as, I acknowledge that this is also vague, but just saying like that, that they're going to put together a, a panel, and, and I know they said, like, you know, we're going to be taking a look at all that, but to not have something concrete and say, we've assigned this person, like, to, to a panel that's going to make some decisions, and we will have, an-, like, that there was not a follow-up, at least press release or something, saying, here's what our plan is, because... It's not like that couldn't evolve. So at the very least, they could have come up with a a temporary plan that seemed a little bit more concrete than, to your point, the vagueness of their practically just three sentences of of, um, somewhat—acknowledgement is the word that I will use, not apology. Uh, But Katie, what were you going to add?
3: Oh, I was going to say that, I mean, the the controversy on this one really kind of ballooned up in the days before the ceremony. You know, you had the Directors Guild and SAG both issued statements. But, you know, there had to have been research uh, and journalists asking questions for quite a while before that story was actually published. And so, yeah, they could have gotten something together a little bit better like, uh, Danette said something that I thought was really right on was that it felt like when you call customer service, and they're like, oh, wow, that's really terrible, but they can't actually do anything <laughs> for you. Um, <laughs> I thought that that was a really great way of kind of describing the sort of air that these statements have. But I want—I mean, I do believe very much that if the Hollywood Foreign Press Association can't get it together in this regard, then that's going to mean they're going to become irrelevant. You know, quite quickly if they can't get it together in this regard. But I wonder if simply changing the membership is. Do you think, do y'all think that that's like a solution in itself or is it a band aid? You know, adding more Black, any Black members to the HFPA?
2: Well, I think, again, to use a phrase that Jeanette used, it's bare minimum. Like that is, mm. that is a, a bare minimum that you could do. And it's, it's, it's difficult because obviously art is is subjective and you know i think we look at this in the way that the academy has has at least somewhat attempted to diversify their membership and yet we still see the oscars so white and i think it's because you know adding a few people to a body, now the body of the HFPA is, is only about 90 people. So adding a few bodies there is more significant than adding a few bodies uh, to the academy, which is much, much, much larger. So the percentage of uh, Black voices that would be part of the voting body would be higher than than in other organizations. So that will create change, but I think it's also just a cultural shift that has to happen. And that's not necessarily solved by having a having some representation in the room. It, it really, it, it really takes some institutional just change in the way that they think about things. And you know, it's a complicated answer. And there's no, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's any. There, there's certainly no easy fix. But I don't, I you know, I, I'm not sure that there's any like hard fix either, other than taking the time and doing the work and really striving to have a. Voting body and and membership that truly reflects the the community that they claim to represent.
0: Something I'm curious about how you guys or you know I'm I'm curious what you guys think about the recent kind of momentum behind just leaving the Golden Globes in the past in the past like just making them a thing of the past. They have because they come up so early in award season. They 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 have like a, a higher profile I think than they might have if they came later in the season and there's it's so often that you know critics and viewers alike when you see the results of when you see the even just the nominations I mean the 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 criticism was just as vocal when the nominations were announced this year and last year because the same way that they that the HFPA overlooked. Uh, I May Destroy You This Year. They overlooked Ava DuVernay's When They See Us Last Year. Uh, that is 2019 into 2020. But um, yeah, like, I, I just wonder if, you know, sites like ours, you know, it, how how we can be a part of the solution if we're still covering these things.
3: Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the same thing, Danette. You know, there are calls to kind of dissolve the Golden Globes, you know, like uh, the Golden Globes shouldn't be a thing anymore. And I do kind of feel as though if you wanted to start completely fresh... You know, uh, you would have to start a new awards body. And the thing that's so odd about the Golden Globes is that there's almost as many people in the Chicago Film Critics Association as there are in the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. (laughs) You know, it's a very small group of people. And maybe you could greatly expand the membership with an eye towards diversity and inclusion. But I kind of find the idea of starting something new exciting.
2: I think the idea of starting something new is exciting. I think that I think having a representation of the points of view of international entertainment journalists is also something that we should have um mm-hmm. and so you know i think I think I would love to see if if this did not continue, there be some sort of other representation of that point of view because I think that that's something that we should celebrate um the fact that this entertainment is broadcast around the world and shared oh, around for the sure. world. Um, but, but to your point, like, I think there's, there's other memberships that are just in equal size or larger, and perhaps we should be highlighting those. And it just goes to, you know, the Golden Globes happen to, to be the the right thing at the right time to get the attention it did when it started. And now it's somewhat of an institution to the point that, I mean, I honestly don't see it going anywhere simply because of all the the money that goes into it and the just, the fact that it's such an institution now um you know it it's it's tough to see a world in which it no longer is aired on tv and that the big stars don't show up and that's honestly what the fact that they're able to get the stars there is what makes this uh unfortunately you know more, quote unquote more important than any of the mm-hmm. o- any other critics associations or things like that just because you know if the stars are going to show up the entertainment news and it's particularly the television entertainment news outlets are going to show up and therefore it's going to get the attention and then it's going to get the sponsors. And then it's going to get, you know, everyone's drinking Fiji and sipping on, on Moet Chandon. And that's, that's ultimately, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalism (laughs) Uh, for better or worse. But uh, it's, yeah, again, there's no, there's no easy answer and it's, it's difficult to see even a hard answer to getting to where things need to be. But I guess all we can hope for is that they continue to take steps in the right direction and as quickly as possible.
3: Yeah, like one thing I was thinking of is, you know, you're talking about the ceremony and the televised aspect. I think that they possibly the reason why this year, you know, because this isn't the first time, it's kind of an open secret that you can buy a Globe nomination. Like you said, people have known about this stuff for a while. And I think the reason that the conversation about, well, why do we care about the Globes anyway was was bigger this year was because you didn't have that aspect that is so essential to its TV appeal. You didn't have all the stars in the same room drinking together, you know?
2: Yeah, 100%. So it, it just shows you, I think that's what it would take for the globes to no longer be the globes would be for for hollywood in general to say you know what we're just not going to show up and, and i think that ultimately it would be the would be the the nail in the coffin in, in that situation that being said there there was plenty to celebrate about the globes there were some Great winners that I'm sh- that I know based on our previous uh, episode conversations that we were excited about, and there were some surprises that uh, we were certainly surprised about. Uh, but the one thing I think that we can all agree on is that one of the highlights, and you could go good or bad on this direction, was Jason Sudeikis's hoodie. <laughs> um, uh, Jeanette, let, let's start with you on on the hoodie. What were what were your thoughts as as Jason took to the screen and and Was either simply just shocked out of speaking or perhaps he was enjoying himself at home. Uh, uh, There's there's a lot to digest in his acceptance speech aside from the hoodie. Um, So just all things Jason Sudeikis, what were your feelings?
0: Uh, My my initial instinct was that he did not expect to be on camera for an extended period of time. Um, That, you know, maybe he thought... Uh, somebody else had the award locked down, and that 's why you know he was just in like a a lightly tie dyed hoodie it wasn't even like the full <laughs> you know like I got the shirt on vacation uh treatment um it it was it was very uh it was very classy in its uh tie dyedness I honestly don't remember a ton about his <laughs> Uh, acceptance speech. Um, I I do love how he marveled, and I mean I I didn't even take an edible the way he apparently did, um, but I yeah I love the way that he marveled at Norman Lear, uh, who you know he and Jane Fonda gave great acceptance speeches. Um, yeah, I I I will always remember that hoodie. Aside from his, aside from Jason Sadekis's own awe. And also uh, that really nice moment where he's like, "I don't really believe in the concept of a best actor," which is yes. a very Ted Lasso thing to say. I think <laughs> it was a very Ted Lasso moment. Um, yeah, I the, the the hoodie is what still stands out for me.
2: And uh, Katie, Katie, what were what were your feelings?
3: Yeah, I when I was watching it, you know, while it was happening, I was thinking, oh, wow, he really, truly did not expect to win this award. (laughs) You know, uh, I think, yeah, he probably didn't expect to be on camera as much as he was. And then it wasn't until I went back later and looked at pictures that I was like, oh, yeah. Our guy definitely ate an edible before this. He was not expecting any of this to happen, like at all. And um, honestly, you know, everybody always says they want off-the-cuff celebrity moments. There it was you know, there's a true off-the-cuff celebrity moment. I was tickled by it. I'd love to see more stars show up for these, uh, you know, events in their in their casual at-home wear. We're all wearing casual at-home wear these days. That'd be great. Another um, great, speaking of casual moments, uh, I thought it was really great that Jodie Foster was on camera with her wife and their dog, and they were wearing their you know, they're silk PJs, and I remember Jodie Foster gave that speech at the Golden Globes back in 2013, where she sort of skirted around, you know, uh, coming out of the closet on TV, and I'm just so happy to see Jodie, you know, out and proud, because she was closeted for a long time, and I'm, it, I was really touched by that.
2: Yeah, I thought that was really sweet as well. I think that that was kind of a big, um, in multiple uses of the term, a big coming out moment for her just to be so comfortable and and sharing that part of Mm -hmm. her life with us um, there. And that is, um, you know, some of the, uh, watching the pre-show ahead of the ceremony on Sunday, people were excited about the fact that they were able to share it with so much of their family. And I thought that that was great. One of the people that had many people with them to celebrate, uh, which makes me shudder a little bit because of the pandemic, uh, but I'm hoping that everyone did that safely, uh, was Andrew Day, who had a, a, I think we could argue, a very surprise win for the United States versus Mm -hmm. Billie Holiday. She had a whole support system around her, which was fantastic to see because she was another one that was completely shocked uh, and it was it was it was nice to see just such a genuine reaction from someone who really did not expect to be giving a speech
3: yeah. um, There was another clip. I saw it on Twitter today. Her and Regina King must have been in the same building somehow. One In the pre-show, one of the uh, nominees said that they were at a hotel. So maybe some people were all at the same hotel. Regina King came down and to congratulate her and just seeing, you know, like she practically cried when Regina King came in the room. And yeah, her excitement was really, really great to see, even if I don't know, that movie was (laughs) really not that great.
2: Yeah, it, well, that was certainly a very Globes win. Um, to,
3: Absolutely. To, so I Total think we could Globes say that win. there.
2: Um, uh, on the TV side of things, there is someone else that was, I think, shocked uh, and maybe it wasn't as emphatic with their shock as, as Andrew Day was. But Emma Corrin certainly, I think, also did not expect to win for her portrayal of Princess Diana in The Crown. And that was a, a very sweet moment as well. Danette, The Crown very much had a a good night. And I don't know that we were all anticipating that to be, at least to the degree that it was. You know, they they won for actress, actor, and series, and supporting actress. Was that something you were anticipating?
0: I think after The Crown picked up its second acting win, uh, Josh O'Connor for Best Actor in a Drama following Emma Corrin, Picking up Best Actress against competition from within her own show, right? Because Olivia Colman, who was last year's winner, was also nominated. I think that's when it started to feel like they, like the Crown, was going to have the same kind of night that Shit's Creek had at the Emmys. Um, I'm still, uh, I'm still a little bit surprised that I, I, like, I, I understand the cachet that Gillian Anderson has within the HFPA and you know the broader culture. Um, I'm still a little bit surprised that her Margaret Thatcher went over that many people. But overall, you know, th- this was a chapter of British royal history that I think most Americans, like even if the, the the voters represent international journalists, this was the season of The Crown that more American viewers could really glom onto. You know, the story of Princess Diana and Prince Charles the ups and downs of it, her tragic death, these are all things that are part of the American public consciousness. So it it definitely had a lot of buzz around it, and it was well done. Before the night started, I don't think I would have called it for the crown, but once that second acting win came in, it, it seemed all but inevitable.
2: Well, I you know I think that it it definitely was a deserving show. I, I but I am I was surprised as as well and until it seemed like it was just the foregone conclusion. But to your point uh, about people thinking Gillian Anderson did such a great job, I was actually very impressed with Tina Fey's Margaret Thatcher voice from the skit that they did uh, with the. First responders and and healthcare workers, uh, she kind of put on that <laughs> voice, and and I was like, wow, that's as good as Gillian Anderson's. Um, <laughs> you know, wherever you fall on the spectrum of how Gillian Anderson did. <laughs> but you know, and I think that that's actually where, similar to a, a SNL, more recently, I think I think the show shined in those pre-taped package moments, highlighting the first responders and healthcare workers. I loved the bit of them talking to the kids about different. Uh, nominated shows and then wrapping it up with honoring Chadwick Boseman in that way. I thought that that was very sweet and touching. Um, all in all, it was a strange Golden Globes that lacked, Katie, to your point earlier, the main thing that we love about the Globes, which is the fact that it's a big party and we get to see people interacting. I think it showed how much that is necessary for successful Globes, but that being said, I am very glad, again, for the lack of diversity in the membership, uh, I'm glad that we had, I believe, five actors to our non-white win, which is a high percentage here, uh, despite the fact that they gave out a lot of awards. It's... it's- It's an interesting year to really look at all of the statistics and I'm glad that we took the time there, but also to celebrate the fun and lightness of it. And that's why we love award shows. Uh, So I really appreciate both of you being here to discuss the Globes and uh, you know we'll get to do it all over again as we get SAG and Grammys and uh, ultimately the Oscars coming up by April. It's it's an odd year that it's all pushed back so many months, but I'm grateful to be covering it uh, with fantastic and thoughtful journalists like both of you. So thank you for your time.
3: Oh, thank you. you. That's
2: so nice. Uh, Well, thank you for your time. But uh, listeners, we are not done with your time just yet. As I mentioned, we are going to be hearing from Davi Diggs, who currently can be seen in Snowpiercer, but has also been involved in multiple projects uh, garnering award show attention. He himself is nominated for a SAG Award For his work in Hamilton, he also voiced a character in the nominated Soul. His co-star, Ethan Hawke, is nominated for Good Lord Bird. And of course, he's also doing a ton of other stuff, and we're going to talk to him all about everything. Uh, Before we get to the interview, I do want to say recording a podcast during a pandemic isn't without a few technical glitches. And unfortunately, some of David's audio came in a bit warped, for lack of a better word. But we thought you'd still enjoy what he had to say, despite the slight audio issues. Um, so without further ado, here is David Diggs. David, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's such an honor. I was talking to some of the staff about the fact that you were going to be our guest this week, and I was going to be speaking with you. And uh, there was a lot of people that were raising their hands in case I was busy. So Oh <laughs> <have> to- <laughs> uh, well, thank you for having me. Uh well congratulations because you know a, a lot of people would be celebrating being involved in just one project that is getting uh attention at the big awards this year but you have uh, a few with the SAG awards right now we have yourself nominated for Hamilton the the project Hamilton itself being recognized mm. uh your your work in the Pixar uh, Disney film Soul and then also you have one of your Good Lord Bird co-stars recognized, so that's that's a, a lot of work there that you uh, have had your hands in that is getting uh, recognized by your by your peers in the guild. So congratulations on all of that.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's uh, the SAG Awards are a cool one. I I am I'm generally weird with awards and award shows, but that one it's nice that it's you know sort of from us. And yeah, it, it's been a good. Couple of years, I I uh, we've we've chosen some really good projects, and I've had a great time getting to know and work with
2: all of these artists. It's it's so nice to see you recognized among your newer work with something like Hamilton, that is a celebration of of one of the projects that really thrust you into the into the limelight. And of course, I still remember your your Tony Awards acceptance speech from there. <laughs> um, uh, Talk to us a little bit about kind of the fact that you're getting to celebrate that project all over again, because of course this was filmed when you all were still involved in the project, uh, and now is is getting to be enjoyed by by everyone on on Disney Plus.
0: Yeah,
1: it's a trip, man. I mean, it, it's sort of it's sort of par for the course with Hamilton that it's just not how nothing about it lines up with how plays are supposed to work. You know, <laughs> uh, so I've just sort of come to accept that this this piece is going to keep having a life, and that's wonderful. I'm I'm so, I mean, I it was a thing that I made with my friends. You know, um, my friends asked me to be in, and 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 we did it. Uh, and it's it's I'm so proud of the work, but also you know, honored that I was able to participate in something that affected people in this way and that people are still seeing themselves in despite it being a very different world already than the one we performed it in. And yeah, it's it's um, it's a trip, it's a trip to be a part of it. It's nice to have excuses to revisit it. I know sort of when I talk to people, Often it feels like they think about it all the time, but I honestly don't think about Hamilton ever unless somebody's talking to me about it. And, but then when, when they are, I get to revisit all of these moments of, of building this thing and the, the incredible time I had watching all of my friends create these roles and the sort of what it felt like to be on stage and all of that. And it's, it's nice to have a reason to go back to that
2: it's hard to imagine that there's people that haven't been exposed to the soundtrack at the very least, if not that they were lucky enough to be able to see a, maybe not the original cast, but a, a stage performance of it. But have you found that people are reaching out to you on social media or, or uh, I would say coming up to you, but I'm assuming that's not happening very frequently given the pandemic, <laughs> um, yeah. um, but that it's found a new audience in a way that, that it hadn't already. It, it definitely has.
1: I don't, uh I am I'm, I'm less and less looking at my social media. So
2: fair. <laughs> that is fair um, and probably the healthier option. So I will give you that. Um but no, it is it's super exciting um that it's so accessible now. And I think while it would have been fantastic to see it in a theater the way that it, it was in, intended to have been initially released, the fact that it released on a platform where everyone could kind of experience it at the same time from the comfort of their home. And I think there was a sort of communal experience of viewing it uh, that weekend it came out
1: yeah it it did it did feel like an event and um and it's also a tribute to everybody who worked so hard figuring out how to shoot the thing tommy kale and the whole crew that he was really trying to make whatever the film version of of that theatrical experience exists you know so he was there's so many things that he did in there that allow you to catch Moments that feel really live, you know, and I think that's that's really cool. You know, it's I think it he was so smart to not just point the camera at the stage, because you'll never feel the energy that way, but to try and use the tricks of the medium to to feel what it felt like to be in the room.
2: Yeah, well, and that's it's, it's it is so interesting. Like, what the line, you know, there's been a lot of discussion uh, with a lot of different opinions on like what constitutes uh, a film versus a, a TV episode versus mm-hmm. uh, a special, and and it's it, this is Hamilton's in a very unique position because I think you could make arguments of of it. Being a lot of different things, and I'm so glad that it's been embraced in whatever format people want to consider it in. Um, and I think that just speaks to the nature of entertainment right now is that genre and labels are something that we that we are not afraid to buck when when necessary.
1: Yeah, I think you know we we, we saw this start to happen with the with the music industry a, a bunch of years ago, right? Where genre just kind of we all became very aware that of of the that that's a marketing trick that's a you know that's just a way to sell things and so when you start put people
2: in boxes right
1: exactly it makes it easy to talk about things so you know it is it is the moment that we're in with with the entertainment industry with the the sort of film and tv part of the entertainment industry is an interesting one because all of the formats have had to change so the boxes are have become obsolete in a lot of ways, and and it beca- I guess we are like hyper aware of it during award season, right? Because it's the it's the time when we honor all of the boxes.
2: <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, another box that you are very involved in is is television, and uh, I'd love to hear because Good Lord Bird got attention earlier in the year, or I guess it, later last year, I should say. But you have Ethan Hawke, your co star, nominated here. Talk to me a little bit about that experience and getting to work on that show,
1: man. That
2: show is incredible. I,
1: Ethan is just—I'm—I'm I'm so glad that he is uh, being recognized here, and that he continues to get more recognition for that role. That I, you know, getting to do it with him, getting to watch him transform like that uh, was, you know, the just one of the greatest performances I've ever seen and, and I, I learned so much from him but he's just such a great guy and um and the way it came about was so um, it was everything about it was filled with so much love and everybody attached to it wanted to do it and was really trying to do it justice and it really you know it starts from McBride's book I think Ethan sort of came across that novel and, and couldn't stop thinking about it. And he, you know, I had never read it. And he came and saw me in a play at the public and, and gave me a copy of the book and was like, hey, read this and uh, think about this version of F- Frederick Douglass, if it's interesting to you. And uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't put it down. It, it's, it's one of my favorite things I've ever read. Um, and so immediately I was like, "Yes, I'll play Frederick Douglass. I'll play a tree in the in the background. I'll play whatever, anything to be part of this." Uh, and um, and then to get on set and watch just like the scope and the scale that they were. Uh, I like big swings, you know. I like. I think a project is worth doing if it's if you're not entirely sure if it'll work, you know. But but it's a really good idea. Um, and so and immediately upon showing up it was one of those it was it was so it was so big the vision was so big and and everything about it was was leaning into the very difficult tone that the that the novel manages to walk and um yeah i'm just super proud to be a part of it and i'm i'm like i find myself proud of everybody involved you know including showtime for putting it out it's not an easy piece of content. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know I smile every time I talk about it.
2: Well, uh, it's interesting to hear you say that because it's reminiscent of, of, uh, stories that you've told about your Hamilton journey as well, where it's kind of like you got to know Lin-Manuel Miranda through another project. And it's, it's a testament to your work, one that people see your work and want to work with you because of it but also that you that you have this like community of actors that really is looking at every time they go out to to see something or work on something that they're they're looking for people that they want to work with on future things.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's um you know, I didn't have I had such limited interaction with with Hollywood or I don't know what to call it, but like the the film and television industry before Hamilton and really very limited interaction with New York theater. I was just doing plays and, and writing rap songs. And I certainly had a bunch of ideas about what this community of artists was like, and they were wrong. Um, I have I found just like so many people working so hard to make really, really interesting things. And it's and it's harder to do in this space than it is on the stage. It's It's easier for people to see, but it's so expensive to make something and the amount of, you know, the the amount of input. It's it's very hard to maintain the voice of a of a piece once once everybody gets all this input on it because of the the financial commitment. And um, but uh, yeah, I feel very fortunate to get to work with so many artists who really, yeah, swing for the fences every time.
2: <laughs> well, you are certainly uh, among those. And and speaking of swinging for for fences, the a uh, work that was done on Soul, I think, yeah. is just so fantastic. And obviously giving voice to uh, both literally and figuratively to characters that we have not seen be given that kind of space in in the animated world very often, and particularly with Pixar. I know it was a big goal of theirs to tell the story of this Black jazz musician.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was initially just brought on to be part of Pixar's been doing this for a while now, where they will sort of invite people from the community and also folks in the industry to be like part of a consulting group basically to watch really early animatics of the of the film um, and just give notes. And they were extra careful with this one because it was their first black protagonist in a film. And they they so they invited just tons of a, a whole bunch of people into the to the process. And so I, I got to be there and like, you know, Quincy Jones was on the same committee and like, I mean, a bunch of incredible artists, but also just black folks from the community, you know, which is also very special to me because the community happens to be Oakland. They're in Oakland, California. So um, so the, that's, that's really why I was there. And then kind of on one of my sessions watching they were like, hey, do you want to do a voice in this barbershop scene? <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, yes, obviously I want to do a voice. Uh, um, and so, yeah, then I got to be Paul, but that was really kind of, it was actually the, the smallest part of what I, what I did there. I think we recorded maybe twice. But getting to watch the evolution of that scene and the whole film was really the best part of the of the process, just watching the way that they work there, and then their their attention to detail, and then getting to be in a scene that is, you know, it, it's a black barbershop in a cartoon. You've never seen that before like that, you know, like it just and and in a Pixar film, you know are saying? Like it's uh it's really it, it's special to me to be in that in that scene in particular, and to to get to be part of this this community that is is important in the world to kind of have that exist in this space for kids um, <laughs> that's that is t- talking about the what it is to have a soul i mean like you know again yeah you were right big big swings over there pixar they don't they don't either.
2: <laughs> like, it shouldn't work but it does and that's, uh,
1: that's pretty amazing
2: and that kind of authenticity i think is is something that we're fortunate to live in a time when that is something that the industry is is really focused on and you in particular i think have gotten to be a part of a lot of projects that that have that aspect to it it's an interesting time to see your voice be able to be portrayed in so many places. I think of also your work on blackish uh, and mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, you're you're able to help tell a little bit of, of a story of what it's like to grow up in the in the words of their other show, Mixed Ish. Uh, um, <laughs> and it it's it's been it's been a joy there.
1: You know, the whole ish universe is um <laughs> is like it's amazing that it that what Kenya and, and that whole squad have been able to pull off really is is because you don't work on shows like that very often that are like black from the top down you know um and uh so yeah when i was doing blackish like getting to you know i was in a predominantly black environment making tv that hadn't happened to me before and it was special and it allows i think for this kind of thing that I look for a lot, which is like a mainstream complication of Blackness. Blackness is so complicated and diverse. For us, we all, we know that living it, right? And when you get a show that does have a majority of Black folks working on it and around, and they are, and everyone's great, and uh, and everyone's working on this same thing and telling black stories, then you just get to show up and be yourself. You know, Johan is, I mean, Johan's not me, but I know Johan so well. The reason I, Kenya came and saw me in Hamilton. Then we sat down afterwards and he said, we went to like dinner or something. He said, I had this idea that you could play Rainbow's brother. And I was like, I, yes, I, I'm team Rainbow. When I watched that show, I grew up in the Bay area. Like I know, I know this family. I, I, I'm definitely in that family. You know, so um, so Johan's like one of the more honest characters I've ever gotten to play because there's there's so much of me in that, um, it's a uh, it's really yeah it's it's very easy for me to fall
2: into. Yeah, well, it certainly is a fun show to watch. People should certainly check that out. But where they can also currently see you on TV is Snowpiercer over on TNT. I'm a fan of that show as well, and was a fan of the film and and the the graphic novels. And so I was intrigued to see how that story would be translated to an ongoing series. And when it started, I was like, "Well, there's no way this is more than one season." And <laughs> you all, season two, I think, is is just as exciting as season one, if not more so. Um, so congratulations on all of that. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, start at the beginning with me on this one. Uh, how did this project come about for you? And did you share any of the concerns that, that I just mentioned in terms of translating a already fantastic adaptation from a graphic novel to film, then to TV? Man, this was an interesting one.
1: It was such a long journey just to get started. So, yeah, I, it was one of, I, I read a pilot script for this show a very long time ago. And um, it was, we were sort of, I can't even remember what year this was. It was probably five years ago, four or five years ago. And um, we were, I, you know, looking for something to do in the TV space to be like an actual lead in a TV show. I hadn't done that. And yeah. And a few things were coming my way and this one, you know, I just, I'm, I hadn't seen the film yet. And uh, so they sent me the script and I read it. And was like, Oh, this is pretty interesting. It's a, it's a very cool world. And then I watched the film and was like, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I would I'd definitely be into being part of this. So I, you know, auditioned and went through the whole thing and ended up getting cast. And then, and then there was a whole bunch of like sort of false starts where the show ended up going in a completely different direction than the one that I had signed up for, which was an interesting lesson in how television works. But that said, uh, what's nice about this project is it continues to surprise me, you know, <laughs> Um I yeah it always like has a new there's so many twists and turns in it it's really fun to, it it feels so different than any of the other things I've ever worked on you know so it's always really fun to to work on and the team is great and these actors also are just my favorite people so it's really yeah it's it's just a great experience but it is I get to do so many things. I, you know, I get to do crazy stunts and uh, and have like intimate moments with grilled cheese sandwiches and do, you know, like the, it's, it is, um, it's such a weird world that they've created that it allows for, um, it's just really, it's really fun to be in. And then it also, the allegory works really well. This is baked into the, to the, graphic novels and and the film obviously but it is when you set class linearly like that it really does make it kind of easy to see the the effects of it on her on on society and it, it is it's kind of a it's a very handy mirror i
2: think it most certainly is uh and and just to continue to see the evolution of that from season one to season two has been it's been interesting but you know all of our all of our discussion earlier about race being something you can discuss and working on projects that are really looking at that through a unique lens um it strikes me that this character didn't have to be a person of color, yeah. uh, was that a part of the process, and did that color did that color the the character in any way once you were cast because I, I can imagine a world in which they were just like, this could be anyone
1: yeah I mean it it, it could have I think I. You know, I always read Leighton as Black because I was always reading him for me. So, uh, so I, I never saw it any other way. I think um, what we've seen in the last few years, and this isn't, this isn't Snowpiercer specifically, I'm talking about, but like industry-wide, is that there is, maybe it's not enough to just put a Black actor in a, in a story and to not do anything to acknowledge the blackness of that actor, right? Or, to, or um, you know, to ignore race in a world where race is current. I mean, in our current world, where where race is, is dictating so much of of the story that we are we're living in, you know. And so, when you start to look at that and start to say, "Oh, well," then then yes, now now we're writing, we're intentionally writing stories for characters who are Black, this is a Black character, and we're writing for this character, and then look around and realize there aren't any Black producers or Black writers or Black whatever, then you find yourself in a bit of a problem, right? And so I think what we've seen across the board is, is a lot of writers' rooms becoming aware of, not just writers' rooms, like the whole space, the entire industry becoming aware of the, the actual problem with a lack of diversity is that you are not as able to tell the stories that you want to tell. Honestly, you don't have enough information to tell them, you know, and you, and you run the risk of putting something out that feels fake or that at best and at worst is offensive, you know?
2: Well, you all do fantastic storytelling on, on Snowpiercer. And it certainly is something that I think speaks to our time in a way that I don't think you all even could have planned when you were working on season one. Uh, It was so, it was so perfectly timed to the, social movements that that have been going on over the past year so congratulations on on maybe that unexpected timeliness there mm-hmm. uh but speaking of of the show what can you tease for us uh about what we're going to see in the in the second half of season two man it's <laughs> it's a trip
1: it's a it's a it's um what can what can i say that's not going to ruin anything. things i mean you know i guess if you've watched a season and a half of it. Now you kind of get the, the deal. Like there's really like an aversion to slowing down on this show. So the the second half of the season just like keeps just, just when you think it got as crazy as it could get, it just keeps getting crazy. And Layton's journey is, is particularly interesting to me. He, um, he has to confront a lot of, a lot of things he hasn't, he hasn't really considered. So uh, it's good, but there's tons of action. There's tons of like, other great, like cool new stuff to look at. I mean, the, the, you know, the show keeps, uh, keeps one upping itself, I think in terms of giving, giving like that good TV candy,
2: you know? Well, love some good TV candy uh, and love the chance of getting to speak with you David. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Push the Envelope. If you want to check out David Diggs, you can see him on Snowpiercer every Sunday night on TNT. And if you want more of us and this podcast, we will be back next Thursday with another all-new episode. Until then, please remember to like and comment and subscribe. We really appreciate all of the love and attention you give us. Uh, If you are looking for me on social media, you can find me at PatrickGomezLA. Definitely let me know who you'd love to hear from in future episodes as we approach the SAG Awards, uh, Grammys, and then, of course, the Oscars coming up in April. We want to make sure that you're getting the interviews that you want, both here and on avclub.com. Until next time, bye! This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.